Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Pugh, and I'm a program director with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Keith Giles. Yeah, welcome. Uh, so yeah, my name is Keith, and my wife, Lindy, and I are working in El Paso, Texas with Peace Catalyst uh, International as well. And um, as we are starting to do now as a regular feature of our podcast, we want to start things off with a sort of a peace quote of the week. And um, this week, we're going to use one that uh, it's not only really inspiring, but it will fit perfectly, as you'll find out in just a moment, with uh, this particular, this specific episode that we're doing today. Um, and the quote is from Shane Claiborne, who's the author of The Irresistible Revolution. And it's, uh, the quote is, only, only Jesus would be crazy enough to suggest that if you want to become the greatest, you should become the least. Only Jesus would declare God's blessing on the poor rather than on the rich and would insist that it's not enough to just love your friends. I just began to wonder if anybody still believed Jesus meant those things, he said. So yeah, I love that quote. That's so good. I think that's such a good point. Like who actually lives that out today, you know, and how do we um, take that to heart and, and put it into practice? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's what I love about Shane. Um, and, uh, you know, just how his emphasis on Jesus and how everything that he does, you know, is, is informed by and driven by the life of Jesus and the, and the, the teachings of Jesus. And that's, of course, I think that's what it should be for all of us. You know, that Anything that reminds us of that radical nature of Jesus, um, it's what, it reminds me of why I got excited about becoming a Christian in the first place, because, you know, Jesus is just so dynamic and so radical, um, and sometimes in ways that make us uncomfortable, but in a good way, and, you know, pushes pushes us out of our comfort zone to kind of step out, because um, that's really, I think, where faith you know, that's where it kind of like the rubber meets the road with our faith. You know, if we're, if we're on our couch, we don't need a lot of faith, but if we're outside our comfort zone, now we're really depending on God for everything, for wisdom and direction and what should we say and what should we do. And, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I love that. And Shane's really been someone in my, in my life who's been really inspiring um, when it comes to things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, that's why I'm so excited about this series too, because, you know, we're talking with all these different Christians who are um, pursuing shalom in their communities and walking out their peacemaking that is informed by their faith in Jesus. So I think this is such a perfect quote and representative of, um, you know, using, not using Jesus, <laughs> looking to Jesus as our model <laughs> of how we should, should walk that out. Um, and, you know, these conversations can really help us understand how we can also be peacemakers in the world around us and um, and become better peacemakers ourselves. Yeah. And so um, that's why we're very honored to have um, in our continuing series on Christian peacemakers, uh, Shane Claiborne himself. So we, are, uh, we have a wonderful conversation to share with everyone with Shane Claiborne. If you don't know who Shane is, Shane Claiborne is a Christian activist. And he's an author uh, who is a leading figure in the new monasticism movement and one of the founding members of a nonprofit organization called The Simple Way in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's really a, um, a community of, of believers who live together in almost a commune style, um, but it's expanded to kind of cover a whole neighborhood, um, just living among people and uh, 
being Jesus to people there in Philadelphia. Um, and Claiborne is a, um, he's also a social activist. Um, he's involved in a whole lot of different things, um, advocating for nonviolence and service to the poor. And we are um, very honored to be able to share this conversation with all of you in our podcast today. So Shane. Oh, Shane Claiborne, welcome to the podcast. We are excited to have you as our guest. Um, I, I've talked to you several times about some of the things that we're going to cover today, but um, for people that don't know very much about you, um, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe specifically some things that you do in in the terms of peacemaking? <laughs> yeah, it's great to be with you, Keith. I well, I, I'll start with my Southern accent. I'm a Southern born, I, I grew up in Tennessee, uh, you know, right in the heart of the Bible Belt, fell in love with Jesus. I grew up uh, not thinking a lot about peacemaking, to be quite frank. Um, I, I, you know, grew up very comfortable with guns. My family hunted. My dad was in the military. Uh, so it was only later that as I, I really reckoned with my faith that I was drawn to the peacemaking work, right? I, you know, I, I think that um, uh, I, I started reading Jesus's words and <laughs> that's where everything starts to unravel, right? Uh, but, you know, Jesus saying, love your enemies. And even as he's getting executed, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. So I wanted to know about peace. And I, I ended up going to school in Philly, and that's where I really started, you know, cutting my teeth on some of the justice work and peace work. Uh, I, while I was in college, we uh, ended up being a part of a, a struggle for housing with home, mostly homeless mothers and children, and that's what eventually gave birth to the Simple Way, the community that I was one of the founders of, and. Uh, we've lived on the north side of Philadelphia for the last 20 or so years. But, you know, that's where gun violence and some of these things became personal uh, because we saw lives that were lost on our street corners, way too many. And we've got memorials everywhere. Um, so, I, I mean, I think on all of these issues of peace, proximity makes all the difference in the world, right? And so when gun violence has a name and a face, uh, everything changes. And that's what happened for me, um, I became very involved uh, around uh, trying to reduce gun violence. And then, you know, as we were getting going, the war in Iraq uh, broke out. And so I also connected, you know, sort of the violence that I saw in our own neighborhood with the violence that I saw in Iraq. And Martin Luther King's one of those folks that is a beautiful voice for helping me, uh, you know, shape my own faith. And, and Dr. King had a powerful line when he said, I've told the kids in the in the city that violence won't solve their problems, but then they ask me, why does our government use massive doses of violence to try to bring the change that it wants in the world? <laughs> you know, and Dr. King said, I, I knew that I could no longer speak against the violence of, you know, our city without speaking against the violence of my own government. So uh, I really wanted to be a peacemaker in that, that holistic sense. And uh, so that, that's that's kind of where it started for me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, so you, I think you t you share this story in um, one of your books. I can't, I don't know if it was maybe Jesus for president or one of the other ones, but it was, you talk about being in Iraq during 
a bombing and, and how that impacted you. Yeah. Can you share that a little bit? Surely. So, I mean, what happened was, um, uh, when the, when, you know, after nine 11, I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners weren't even born then, you know, it's been a little while, but <laughs> when, when September 11th, the attacks happened, you know, some 3000 lives were lost and people were, that was a, a, a landmark moment in our country. And I think it, it surfaced some of people's deepest fears and anger and, um, uh, and pain. And, and I can remember in Philadelphia, Keith, someone dropped a banner that said, let's kill them all and let God sort them out. So, I mean, there were those ugly expressions, but then I heard about a different response. And that came from a group called Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. And they, they were um, directly impacted by the, the September 11th attack. So these are folks that lost their spouses. They lost their moms and dads, their children, immediate family members. And their response was different. They, they, um, gathered originally as a support group, but then as they saw the war begin as a response, their, their kind of manifesto became, please don't kill in our name. Our grief is not a cry for war. And many of them went to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I got a call from a friend of mine that was organizing a delegation to Iraq uh, to be in Baghdad. And it, interestingly enough, it was a joint delegation. It was a bunch of different people working together. We had veterans, we had clergy, but we also had a group called the Muslim peacemaker teams and the Christian peacemaker teams. And we were all working together for this common cause of trying to not counter the violence of 9-11 with uh, bombing and war. And so I went over in March of 2003, and little did I know that that was actually when the bombing campaign started. You know, we were prepared for that, but nothing can prepare you for what we saw. You know, we, we, there were, I've heard estimates of over, you know, 900 bombs a day that were being dropped on Baghdad and we were living in Baghdad. So our windows were shattered. You know, we were holding bodies that were riddled with missile fragments, children in hospitals that we were visiting. So we began to volunteer and we began to cry out against the war. And I'll tell you one, we can, you know, there's so many things I've written and, you know, that impacted me about all this, but I'll tell you one quick story, which was as the bomb started falling, we gathered to pray for a prayer service for peace. And there were all kinds of different folks together, uh, Christians of all different stripes from not just Baghdad, but from all over that area. And as we prayed for peace, um, the bishops had collaboratively written a statement that was addressed to Muslims. And they said, we want you to know, especially at such a time as this, that we love you. And we know that you as Muslims are created in the image of God every much as every bit as much as we are, that we're made from the same dirt of this earth that God breathed life into and made in God's own image. And then they said, we come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> you know, and, and then one of the bishops pointed to the cross and he said, this cross teaches us a different way, the narrow way that leads to life. And this cross, the Prince of Peace, Jesus shows us uh, how we can live in a world full of violence without mirroring that violence. And, um, and, and, you know, the evil can be opposed without being mirrored. And, and so then the whole place started singing amazing grace in Arabic. And I was wow. you know, moved as I'm listening to, you know, this f familiar tune, but now it's in Arabic. And 
afterwards, I was just tears rolling down my face. I, I beelined to the altar and I, I was talking a hundred miles an hour because I had one of them Holy Spirit moments, you know, and I'm talking to Bishop and I said, Bishop, I, I, I got to tell you, this is one of the most powerful worship services I've ever been in. And, you know, I'm looking at and the, the place is packed. And I said, I had no idea that there were this many Christians in Iraq. And then he gently stopped me in my tracks and he said, yeah, this is where Christianity started. <laughs> and then he, said, he pointed out the window and he goes, that's the Tigris River and the Euphrates. Have you read about them before? You know, and he goes, the, the Garden of Eden was right down the street. And then what he said next, I'll never forget. He said, you go back, when you go back to the United States, you tell them that we are praying for them. We're praying for the American church to remember who it is. And he said, you remember that you didn't invent Christianity in America. You just domesticated it. And we need you to wake the church up for the cause of peace. So, you know, that, that shook me. And I, I, I will never forget that, you know. Oh, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. That's incredible. <laughs> that's amazing. And I love how I love how Jesus is at the center of like the inspiration, the motivation for peace and how like his life is is what um, guides you towards peace and towards nonviolence. Yeah, absolutely. We were there, you know, incidentally, we were there during the, the Lenten period, you know, which we're just coming out of as this is being recorded. But that that season leading up to Easter and, you know, here we are. Uh, in the middle of this bombing and war and I'm remembering Jesus and, and it, it, and in a totally new way, it, it changed a lot of my theology of how I think about Jesus's death and what he did on the cross, you know, because um, I'm not one that like has a lot of visions and hears directly words of God. But when I was in Iraq, I think you're kind of, Everything was hypersensitive, you know, and I did have this really clear vision that it was like the body of Jesus was laying on top of Baghdad as these bombs were falling. And he was actually trying to protect Baghdad and in and, and Iraq as those bombs were falling. And it got even more, you know, kind of visual than that. But what I've come to realize is that really what Jesus does on the cross is absorb all the violence of the world and expose it, you know, in order to show us a different way and, and to subvert that violence with, with love, uh, even to the point of loving his enemies so much he died for them too. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love that commission that you received um, <laughs> from the bishop about waking the church up in America and helping us understand you know, the ways of peace that, that are kind of modeled for us by Jesus. So, I mean, and that's kind of what we're about. That's, that's really our heart as well. And I mean, how do we do this? Are there, I know you're involved in a whole lot of different ways that you go about doing that. I mean, on, on the small, like you said, local level, um, but also maybe on some wider levels, trying to help the church local and the church at large uh, wake up and realize you know, the things that make for peace. So how do we do that? I mean, how, what are some ways that you've been focused on um, helping to wake up the church? Wow. Well, yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I, I was struck by was when I came back to my community in North Philadelphia, um, the kids had 
written in the sidewalk on, on the sidewalk with sidewalk chalk. You know, the, the, we, we play with that a lot in Philly. And so, but they had written when I got back from Iraq, it said, war no more. Let us love one another. You know, all these messages of peace and the world just shrunk. You know, I mean, like the, the, the violence that we see in our neighborhood, the violence we see in Iraq. Um, and we eventually, uh, I went back to Iraq. I've, I've been to Afghanistan and we've even done Skype calls with the kids on our block and the kids in, in, that I know in Afghanistan. And they share with each other their dreams, you know, and their dreams are very similar that they would live in a world where they don't have to worry about being killed. Like those are the dreams of the kids on my block. Those are the dreams of these kids in Kabul and uh, in Baghdad. And, and so um, I, I, we've got a lot of work to do. You know, I, I think there's some internal work that peacemaking begins inside of us. Right. So uh, I, I believe we, uh, the word disciple that we often use in the church shares the same root as discipline. And, you know, it doesn't just happen, peacemaking. I mean, our knee-jerk reaction is for almost all of us is to respond to violence on its own terms. So I think we've got to yeah. train our hearts and our, our, our souls and spirits in the way of nonviolence so that what becomes normative is um, not to emulate violence with violence, but to, to, to do that differently. And Dr. King, again, is a great example of that. You know, he he, they had trainings in nonviolence uh, in the movement, the civil rights movement. And that, you know, eventually Dr. King would say, do whatever you want to us, but we will still love you. You know, they were trained in love. Yeah. And he said, you can bomb our houses and we will still love you. You can threaten the lives of our children and we will still love you. You can put your dogs on us and throw us in jail and we will still love you, but we will wear you down by our love. Right. That's what Dr. King said. So I think we need to realize that the most powerful voice force in the world is love. And, and Jesus came certainly to heal the victims of violence, but I think that, that Jesus also came to heal the victimizers, you know, the, the oppressed and the oppressors. And so yes. uh, if, if we believe that, you know, then it creates a, a, a more gracious spirit about us. Now, I think like as we're doing the heart work, we've also um, on our on our front door of our community, we are, we've got a painting. We got a lot of murals and paintings and art. But on our front door, it says, uh, "Dear God, heal our hearts, heal our streets, and heal our world." And to me, that connects this you know work of peacemaking that it does begin in our hearts. But then we look at our nation that is so riddled with violence. Even the history of our country. I mean, it would be hard to imagine America as yeah. we see it today without guns, without you know, the violence that we did to Native Americans without, you know, subjugating an entire population of people that we, you know, it's, uh, took from their own country. So I think that violence has to be reckoned with, but it continues to manifest itself in an, uh, like an untreated wound. You know, we, we keep, um, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things I love about our country, but I think violence is one of our uh, principalities and powers. I mean, uh, of, we've got more guns than people. You know, we, we, we're losing a hundred lives every day to gun violence. In my lifetime, we've lost more lives to guns domestically than in all of the wars in U.S. history. So I think gun yeah. violence is, is a, a, you know, a national epidemic. And I've tried to write about that because what I found, which was so st stunning, is that a lot of Christians, we talk about being pro-life. But really, we often only think about abortion. And on so many of these other issues of militarism, of guns, 
we aren't always the champions of life that we should be. In fact, the biggest gun owning demographic in America is Christians. We own yeah. we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. You know, so yeah. We're, yeah. we're worshiping the Prince of Peace on Sunday and packing heat on Monday. You know, and I think <laughs> I think when it comes to militarism and war too, that's very similar. You know, um, that we we have. Uh, uh, the, the capacity of over 50,000 Hiroshima bombs, you know, all of the bombs, the nuclear bombs in the world, uh, only nine countries own them. And we own almost half of them. And we're the only country that's ever used those bombs on a civilian population, you know, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So we've got this violence historically and presently that I think we've got to reckon with as, as one of the great principalities and powers of our time. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that you get this question all the time, Shane, but how would you respond to somebody who says, you know, well, Jesus said he came to bring a sword? Yeah, how would I, you respond I, to that? I think it's a really important uh, scripture um, in, in, in um, what ends up happening. You know, the whole context for that is really important because I think we can take individual verses and sort of uh, do, do some uh, uh some theological gymnastics to make them say kind of whatever we want. But I, you know, as I yeah. look at that text, what's pretty clear to me is that Jesus is airing the dirty laundry of some of his followers. And he had followers that were violent revolutionaries. Uh, I mean, think about it. Peter picks up a sword, you know, to uh, and cuts the guy's ear off. So I think Jesus, you know, it, it actually says um, that this was a fulfillment of, of, of scripture that he would be numbered with the transgressors, you know? So, uh, there were people that had swords, and I think Jesus wants to bring that out into the open, uh, not in order to call for arms, but actually in order to finally triumph over the idea that violence is going to change the world. And that's exactly what he does, because uh, right after he says, go get your swords, Peter uses one, right? The soldiers yeah. come uh, to get yeah. G- to arrest Jesus, and Peter cuts one of the guy's ears off that came to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus's rebuke of Peter, you know, is stunning. He says, no, put that away. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That's not the way we're doing this, right? And then he heals the man that Peter wounded. And Tertullian and the early Christians, they understood that as really the final triumph over the sword. Tertullian said this, when Jesus disarmed Peter in that incident, he disarmed every one of us. Because if ever there was a case for using violence to protect the innocent, for standing your ground, right? Peter had the best case in the world, and yet Jesus shows us, and the disciples get it. You know, after that, you don't see them using violence. They end up dying. You know, uh, Peter ends up yes. being crucified, you know, upside down. So we, we look at the, the story of the early church, and it is a story of people who begin to understand that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to teach us the way of, of nonviolence and even to the point of loving our enemies and being willing to die for that. So the early Christian said, for Christ, we can die, but we cannot kill. Uh, you just can't reconcile the cross in one hand and a weapon in the other. They're, they're two very different versions of power. Yeah. I love that answer, Shane. That's exactly right. And then, you know, um, 
it's, it's odd to me because it seems like the people who need the most convincing that Jesus is really the Prince of Peace and a nonviolent Messiah seem to be Christians in America. It's like, no, Jesus really is the Prince of Peace. Um, and actually, it says in Isaiah, one of the prophecies of the Messiah, it says that, um, you know, though he did no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, right, he was numbered with the transgressors. And it's like, well, then if so, so if Jesus did any violence, then he's not the Messiah, according to Isaiah. I mean, yeah. he has to, this is who he is. He really is the Prince of Peace. Yeah, and this, um, is, this is who God is, right? It, like, if we yes. want to see... God, we look at Jesus. And I think sometimes yes. what we do is we interpret Jesus uh, in light of the Old Testament or something that Paul written yes. that's maybe misconstrued mm-hmm. rather than allow Jesus to be the lens through which we're understanding the Hebrew yes. scriptures and understanding the rest of the New Testament. Uh, because I think there's a lot of places that that the unfolding revelation of God can be seen. For instance, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? This is one ancient version of justice that that allowed for reciprocal harm, that said you could harm someone back in as much as they harmed you. But as you really study that, it wasn't a license for revenge. It was an attempt to stop the spiral of violence begetting violence, right? So if someone poked your eye out, you go poke both of their eyes out. And then, you know, like this kind of violence continues. It, it was to limit the, the, the harm that you could do. And that's why it's so beautiful that Jesus understands that. And he'll say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this, right? Moses told you this, but I tell you this. And I don't think he's negating that law, but fulfilling it. And the fulfillment of the eye for an eye law is that you may have a legal right to take someone's eye out, but that doesn't mean you should, right? It's not the best that we can do. We don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong, and we shouldn't try to kill to show that killing is wrong. And, you know, that's why I think on the death penalty, on gun violence, on militarism, so many things, the movement for black lives, like we need a better ethic of life that is not just pro-birth, but that is pro-life from womb to tomb. You know, and, and I still care about abortion. It's one of the many issues that I think we should be concerned about. Uh, but it's in, you know, the, the whole trajectory of a better ethic of life that says every human being is made in the image of God. And if a life is cut short uh, by gun violence or racism or militarism, that matters to God. And it should matter to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I, I love the work that you've been doing in that chain. I mean, uh, I think you, I've seen you sort of traveling around the country, um, going to different places when there's going to be a public execution and trying to call attention to this and, and you know, call for, uh, for these to, to stop, you know, call for people to recognize that we're taking a life. And, you know, yes, these are, these are people, like you said, you know, Jesus's concern is not just for the victim, but for all of us, right, for even the one that does the violence. Um, because we're all children of God and even, even someone who does, you know, something horrible and commits a crime, you know, you could go look in their history and their background. They didn't start out that way. They're, they're a child who is kind of um, had some original innocence that got twisted and, and broken through, through, you know, so many other factors that they, they, in many ways, they themselves are victims and they also are deserving of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace and, um, and I just, I love the work you've been doing in that area, Shane. Well, thanks. Yeah. And, and I mean, for me, the death penalty is not just one 
you know, issue, but it actually raises some of the most fundamental spiritual and theological questions at the heart of Christianity, right? For instance, is anybody beyond redemption, <laughs> right? So, I mean, yeah. look, if we believe that a murderer, uh, even, I mean, uh, that, that a murderer is beyond redemption, we, we've got a problem because Moses killed someone. David killed Uriah after he committed adultery, yeah. raped Bathsheba. You know, Saul of Tarsus went door to door trying to kill Christians, oversaw the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. I mean, these are folks that, uh, let's just say they had some really bad days, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they, yes. and yet, like, <laughs> like the whole story, right, is about, imperfect people that are falling in love with a perfect God and that grace gets the last word, you know? Uh, and, 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 yeah. you know, that's what Jesus said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, you know, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, I didn't come for the righteous, but the sinners. And yet sometimes when it comes to issues like the death penalty, we end up having some of these other uh, cultural, you know, conversations or ways that we twist theology in order to justify something that is so clearly a contradiction of uh, the the gospel of redemption. You know, um, and there was a study I think Pew did where they asked Christians generally, uh, like, all, or no, they they asked Americans, not just Christians, but Americans in general, uh, would Jesus be in favor of the death penalty? And like 95% of Americans said, no, Jesus wouldn't be in favor of the death penalty. We just got to convince the Christians of that, you know? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We, we've had a problem with the death penalty for like 2000 years, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, so I think we just got to do better theology. You know, we've got, and, and we've also got to be close to, that's why proximity makes a world of difference too, is that I began visiting people on death row. Um, I have really, really close friends of mine who were wrongfully convicted. Uh, they were sentenced mm -hmm. to death for things that they had nothing to do with, and now they're free. Uh, but some of them, that's after 20 years on death row. One of my friends yeah. had six execution dates. He was three hours from his execution. And then they they proved his innocence. And I mean, this is just traumatic, like years of people's life that is taken from them. And then I know people that were guilty. You know, I know people that were, I, I know they did the horrific crimes that they were convicted of. And yet I've seen what Jesus has done in their life over, over the years. And uh, one of those, executions in Tennessee happened. And uh, it was so, uh, so wrenching for me. I was with a, a guy named Don Johnson who became a friend uh, the week he was executed. And he did everything he knew to do to try to heal the wounds of, of the crime that he was responsible for. He killed his wife and, um, and had began to repair a relationship with his daughter who originally was for the death penalty and then became against it as she began to really see the possibility of change. And then he was executed. Um, and his, his last words, he even fasted from his final meal and asked that the money be donated to folks on the street. And then as he was executed, he said, I'd, last, I'd like my last words, if it's okay to be singing praises to my Savior. And so he died singing soon and very soon. I'm going to see the King. There's no more crying there. There's no more dying there. But what, what broke my heart in all of that is that the person who's really responsible for his execution is governor Bill Lee, who's a church going Christian, you know, every Sunday posting scriptures on Twitter. And yet like 
we asked him, 32 of the men on death row have asked him, come visit them and just hear the stories of what Jesus has done in their life and rethink, you know, uh, the death penalty. And he, he's yet to go visit them. But I think that's that proximity makes a, a really big difference on all of these issues, whether it's immigration, how we think of Muslims. You know, there's lots of people that have opinions about people that they don't know. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> True. Yeah. And I guess like if you had to leave, um, leave our listeners with, you know, one kind of piece of advice that kind of like culminates everything that you've shared and talked about today um, for how they can become, you know, more like Jesus and building peace, what would that be? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Becca. I, I, I guess, you know, the, the organization I'm working, uh, you know, helping lead these days is called Red Letter Christians. And we get our name from the Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red, you know, and, and uh, I, I, I think what's become clear to me is Gandhi was right when he said uh, he was asked about Christianity and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. <laughs> and, yes. and here's the thing, though, is that. You know, we, we laugh at that because we know the truth and the hypocrisies that we, we know are within the church, but we're losing an entire generation of young people. I mean, recent studies are showing two thirds of young people are leaving the church. Um, and it's because many times we, they, they see Christians who talk about loving our enemies. We talk about how much we love Jesus, but um, one of the biggest obstacles to Christ has become Christians who have a lot to say with our mouths, but our lives don't always reflect uh, that fidelity to Jesus. So I want to invite people, maybe even people that are listening that have been really hurt by the church to keep leaning into Jesus, you know, in spite mm-hmm. the embarrassing things that Christians have done. And for others that are, you know, church going Christians, maybe begin, let's, let's find ways that we can have a better ethic of life to where we can care about um, all of these dis- these different um, uh, issues of life and death, uh, whether it's the death penalty or gun violence or militarism, and be peacemakers. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I'm convinced that we're losing young people, not because we've made the gospel too hard, but because we've made it too easy. And we promise people life after death when many people are asking, is there life before death? Like, doesn't the gospel have any relevancy to the world that we live in. And so let's have a faith that, you know, I believe in life after death. It's going to be beautiful. Uh, But I also believe in life before death. And I believe that the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about isn't just something that we're to go up to when we die, but something we're to bring down on earth while we live on earth as it is in heaven. So let's seek that kingdom, the transformation of the world from what it is now into what God wants it to be. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Shane, love you, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate all that you're doing. And uh, thank you so much for being our guest today. Yeah. You all too. Thanks so much for listening. Wow. <laughs> that was so great. Man, that was awesome. I, really, I really love Shane Claiborne. Um, and uh, I just love his spirit. I, I know I've never been in a conversation with him that at the end of the conversation, I'm not just excited about following Jesus, right? He just kind of had this infectious uh, spirit about him of like, yeah, that's right. Let's go do this thing. 
Totally. I love that. Yeah. He's so energetic and he really, I think because he's really living it out, it's so, um, yeah, it's just contagious. Like you want to be a part of that. Actually, I'm, I'm reading through Acts right now, the book of Acts, and it's just so cool to see somebody who's kind of walking out, living out what the early church was doing, where they were like, you know, all together with eating together, living together, like fostering genuine community. And this idea of like, you know, gathering all you have and selling it and giving it to the poor, like the way that he's really living in relationship with those in his community and um, kind of walking that out is really inspiring. Yeah, it really is. I, I, it's one of the things when I first heard about Shane and um, I read Irresistible Revolution, you know, you can't help but feel like, wow, this is really exciting stuff. This is, you know, Christianity is not boring. <laughs> um, it's really a little bit, it's, 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 uh, it's exciting and dynamic and sometimes a little bit scary, but in a very good way. And um, I really love, and then, you know, very grateful for Shane spending time with us and uh, sharing these ideas with us. And, you know, a couple of things that he said that kind of jumped out, you know, he, he said something about how it's hard to imagine America without violence. And uh, I think that is sad, but true. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you study American history, even before America was a nation, you you study this like the colonial history, you know, immediately there's violence between the the colonists and the Native Americans. Um, There's violence even between um, uh, Quakers and Puritans uh, who are uh, putting each other to death because, you know, they were preaching the gospel without a license or, or just, you know, wow. preaching the wrong kind of gospel. It's really very, very sad. And then, yeah, uh, you know, it, it just seems like uh, America's, no, I guess we hear that America's original sin was slavery and that's certainly true, but I think violence is definitely one of the, one of the other ones. And it's, it's something we're still struggling with today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually thinking back to our episode now with Cleo Scott Brown, because I yeah. think we talked about how even in today's, um, our culture, like violence is just part of our language and part of mm-hmm. um, media and things that we're consuming. So I think, yeah, it seems to be kind of a legacy that we, an unfortunate, yeah, terrible legacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we're so addicted uh, as Americans and as American Christians to this sort of like, we're all about our rights. I think Paul Young has a, a wonderful quote where he says, um, your rights are where uh, the gospel goes to die. <laughs> and um, wow. I think it's true, right? With the minute you're all about your rights, well, then you can just forget about the gospel. Um, yeah. And when I, when I see how committed we are to violence in the church, I mean, this is what breaks my heart. Um, I think about how, you know, early Christians were so nonviolent. I mean, they totally got this. If you ever read um, any of the quotes of the early church fathers, um, really for the first like 400 years of church history, extremely nonviolent and um, very, very committed to the, to the ethic of following Jesus in his nonviolent enemy loving example. And it makes me think like if, 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 um, if the early Christians had been like American, American Christians today, then when Saul of Tarsus knocked on their door, to persecute them, they would have killed him. And then he would never have a chance to write most of the New Testament. So, wow. <laughs> so wow. <laughs> true. I really do. I feel like, 
we're all, because we're all about our rights and defending our family and defending ourselves. Um, and again, we should be very grateful those early Christians didn't think that way because what they did was they gave opportunity for the Holy Spirit to really transform Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul so that he could experience the love of Christ and and write most of the New Testament that we have that we, we love so much today. Wow. Wow. That, that is really powerful. <laughs> it's really convicting because I think even I can think like that sometimes, you know, like, oh, we got to defend ourselves. We have to be able to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that's so inherent, I think, in some ways and even has become part of like um, Christian like language or culture, you know, mm-hmm. like. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and it is it is something it's difficult to overcome. And I think it is. I mean, I'm sure there's Christians in other places, uh, you know, in other countries where this is maybe also a challenge. But it, I know for a fact it is a challenge for American Christians. I think because of sort of how we've kind of blended our faith with our politics and with our, the American spirit, you know, and um, this idea of independence. And, and again, it's all about our rights and that kind of a thing. Um, and, uh, which is really sad, but, you know, I try to point out to people like, you know, when we're talking about this kind of topic, like, you know, that Jesus really was this nonviolent Messiah and, you know, right. that Jesus, he's the Prince of Peace. You know, if we remember your Christmas stories, you know, uh, every, every December we, <laughs> we talk about these, this legion of angels singing, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. This is the announcement of his birth peace, right? Um, right. His his whole ministry is love your enemy, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you. Uh, he tells Peter to put down his sword, uh, that if he lives by the sword, he'll die by the sword. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight. Meaning, well, if we fight, we're saying that his kingdom is of this world. Like we're, you know what I mean? It, it's sort of a condition. Yeah. And there's just so many examples of Jesus um, mm-hmm. saying and modeling this idea. And one thing I point out to people as well is that, um, again, according to a prophecy in Isaiah, uh, it says that the Messiah who would come, would it says, though he did no violence um, and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was numbered among the transgressors. And so mm-hmm. it's like I want to say to people who, who want to say, but wait a minute, you know, um, Jesus told the disciples in Luke to go buy a sword and, uh, and Jesus flipped over the, the tables in the temple. We have to understand, and I get those are some legitimate questions for, for some people, but, um, but you have basically two, maybe two examples, uh, as compared to like 20 others <laughs> where yeah. he's, he's so clearly nonviolent and, and again, not just in what he modeled, but in what he and what he told us. But again, here's the problem that if you want to say that Jesus did violence, let's say in flipping over the tables in the temple, then according to the prophecy in Isaiah, then he's disqualified from being the Messiah because it says he did no violence. Wow. If you want to say he did some violence to, to other people, then, well, according to Isaiah, he's not the Messiah because that Messiah would do no violence. So um, can we take a second? Cause I, I want to, I want to just address those kind of those objections like um especially the i guess the one about where jesus says um going by a sword or when he says things like i came to bring not peace but a sword 
And those are, those are just some of the things that usually pop up. Um, so one thing I would say is that, uh, when Jesus says that I came to bring not peace, but a sword, um, this is a, it's sort of a, a, a Jewish kind of idiom. And if you, once you notice this, you actually, you'll see numerous examples in the gospels where Jesus speaks this way. One example would be where Jesus says, um, that we should work not for, you know, food that spoils and things that corrupt, but which should lay up our treasures in heaven. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you take that statement at face value, what Jesus is saying is you and I should quit our jobs. (laughs) If if we're taking literally, he's literally saying not work for things below. Yeah. Things like food that corrupts and, and, and objects that, 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 corrode and, and spoil and rust, but only work for the kingdom. Now, we intuitively understand he doesn't mean it literally. He's he. What he means is something like this. Don't only do this, but especially yeah. do that, right? Yeah, right. And uh, and so, and he does this all the time. Don't focus Most, on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, so, for example, another example is when he says, um, I think it's when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the spirit, right? Well, yes, flesh and blood did because Jesus was flesh and blood and he was telling him like, so it's, it's not literal. It means not only this or not merely this, but especially that, right? There, there's many examples of Jesus doing this. So when Jesus says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword, it's the same kind of limited negative. Of course he came to bring peace. Again, he's the prince of peace. His birth is announced by millions of angels proclaiming peace on earth to build a men. He's yeah. teaching about peace, right? So yeah. in this context, when he says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword, he means not only have I come to bring peace because yes, I have come to bring peace, but also a sword. Now here's the thing. You got to keep reading because yeah. he explains what he means by that. He doesn't mean sword in the sense of, we're going to start killing each other. The sword is a metaphor for how, you know, people within families, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, um, or fathers and sons and daughters and and, and mothers and things like this, that people within a family would, would have conflict over, over Jesus. Some of them believe he's the Messiah. Some of them don't, they would lose. So it's, it's more about conflict and tension within a relationship within a family it's not about a literal sword where anyone's dying. No, you're not supposed to take right. a sword and kill your father because he right. doesn't believe Jesus is a Messiah. Right. Um, so again, so it's like understanding what's really going on here. This is a figure of speech and, and what's really being said there, right? So Jesus yeah. is affirming actually in that statement, I have come to bring peace, but in another way, there's going to be a sword or meaning just some division or conflict, but yeah. not violence. That's so good. That's so good. I think that's so important because I, um, I think I've read that actually in Rick Love's book called Peace Catalysts. He, he unpacks that same passage and it was mind blowing because if you have never learned that the understanding of that text, of course you could think, wait, why would Jesus say this? (laughs) Like, I don't, (laughs) um, but I even, I think of stories like when the disciples wanted to like rain, they wish that fire would like rain down on, um, I think it was Samaritans or something. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, that's not, 
right? And so again, Jesus' teaching is emphasizing that we we love the, those who are against us. We bless those who curse us. We don't we don't bring violence against them. It's so good. I think, and I think. Go, go ahead. I think. Well, I think it's interesting because the gospel, like, there is a lot of violence, but it's like it's the violence that Jesus took yeah. on Himself, you know. And sometimes I think like we're so willing to inflict violence on others, but mm-hmm. would we, would we be willing to take violence on ourselves for the sake of um, yeah. the gospel or yeah. for the sake of loving people? So, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what we see in Jesus is he suffers violence, mm-hmm. um, right? Like a lamb to the, like that was led to the slaughter. Uh, he was, he sees, he was silent. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a really wonderful point. I think, you know, when I, when I hear people say things like, you know, well, look, if you're going to be this nonviolent person and you're not going to protect yourself, you're not going to protect others, you're not going to use self-defense, you're not going to be violent because you're wanting to follow Jesus. I just can't respect someone like that. Well, what you're, you're describing Jesus, <laughs> Jesus also <laughs> yes. did not defend himself. Jesus also did not do violence uh, in, in any way. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and he taught nonviolence to, yeah. you know, to, it was always um, not passive nonviolence, like right. it was very active, but, you know, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, like, and those are forms of kind of resistance to against the empire, but it was always nonviolent. Yeah, it's in it, it was a very creative nonviolence. It was, a, there's an imagination behind it that's like, it's not just merely like, just let people walk on you. Um, right. It's to resist that, to, to nonviolently resist oppression and violence yeah. in a way that calls attention to your own humanity and to their humanity as well. It's not just about you. Uh, it's about them as well. And wanting them to kind of awaken to that idea of like, oh, wait a minute, what am I doing? That's kind of right. what you're wanting to happen. You know, I think what Jesus is wanting us to uh, create these opportunities for the kingdom to break in. Um, yeah. And I, I have to say one other thing, because the other the other the other uh, big argument that comes up is where there is a passage in Luke where Jesus tells the disciples um, to go and buy a sword. And uh, quite mm-hmm. often I hear that like, well, see right there. Where is that? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't know about that. There's a there's, a passage, there's a passage in Luke where uh, it's actually right before the garden. Um, mm. So it's after it's after the oh, yeah. after the, you know, the la- the Last Supper. And he's teaching them. And then he says, you know, uh, he goes, when I sent you out in the, in the past, um, I told you to take nothing with you, but now uh, go and buy a sword and then let's go. And then they, from there they go almost Im- they immediately. The very next thing that happens is he's praying in the garden. And then uh, Peter pulls the sword out and cuts off, mm-hmm. um, you know, the man's ear, the sword's yeah. ear. And so, and then Jesus heals it and rebukes him, by the way, and says, yeah. what are you doing? Put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So, yeah. but, but people are like, will take just that instance where it's, well, look, Jesus said, go and buy a sword. Um, again, I just encourage anybody, if you think that that, that statement from Jesus is justifying um, using weapons and, and, and having weapons and, and that kind of a thing in violence, go back and read the entire thing. So, yeah, uh, I know that these are uh, difficult passages sometimes. And if we're honestly struggling, that makes sense. I mean, I, I get it if we're confused a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. you know, if, you, if you were to make some kind of a, a list, uh, you would have like 10 or 15 examples of Jesus being nonviolent, teaching nonviolence, modeling nonviolence. And you'd have two, maybe two verses, maybe three verses 
that might like these that might be like, well, what's going on there? But if you look at it, it actually does make sense on its own. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, working it out to see that it is consistent with who Jesus was and what he said. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. And I, that story is, I think this is so important because we really, when we do take the time to kind of read and study and learn the context, then we can see kind of what you're saying. Like actually Jesus was living and promoting and teaching nonviolence because that's not something that most, most of us here in the church, it's not something we learn. Um, Sadly, you're right. That's, that's, it's very, very true. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and I think it's because we in America, especially are, um, we're kind of, we're kind of convinced this sort of like redemptive violence thing is, um, you know, like, that they, like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember growing up as a kid and like all my heroes had guns and, you know, like the whole John Wayne and uh, Gunsmoke and, you know, the Westerns were big when I was a kid. So, you know, like, <laughs> but all you, all my, I, I mean, it, it took me a while to realize that, like, yeah, what is going on here? How come? all my heroes have weapons and guns and the good guy has to have a weapon or a gun to do some kind of violence to overcome evil. You know, yeah. the end of almost every TV show I watched was the good guy shooting the bad guy and um, problem mm-hmm. solved. Right. <laughs> so, right. So it, it does take a little bit of, you know, allowing Jesus to, um, to kind of transform our way of thinking a little bit and saying, no, there's a better way. There's another way. I, I think I think Shane made this comment in the interview too that, you know, that the most powerful force in the world is love, and yeah. um, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes we have to be convinced of that. We have to or be reminded of that. You know, when we when we because sometimes when we emphasize love, when we talk about you know God is love, and and we talk about the, how great is the love of God, and we have an emphasis on the love of God. Um, I think sometimes people push back and like, oh, you know, this whole lovey-dovey week, it's, it kind of sounds like flowers and poetry and weakness and like, you know, come on, no, God isn't like that. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Well, if your perception of love is that it's weak, please remember that God is love and God is yeah. the most powerful being in the universe. So love is not weak. If anything, like Shane says, the most powerful force in the world, in the universe is love. We just have to believe that. We have to fall back on this to say that love is more powerful than any weapon. Love is more powerful than violence. Um, Mm -hmm. Love has this potential. And when we talk about it being powerful, we're talking about it being powerful enough, um, you know, not to kill someone, but to change someone, to transform someone. Like, Like we said earlier, to transform someone like Saul of Tarsus who in his own words said he was breathing out murder and violence against the church to transform someone like that into, into a, uh, the apostle of love right. writing, you know, who's gushing in, in Ephesians and Romans and Colossians and going on and on about how great is the love of God. It's higher and wider and longer and deeper and it transcends knowledge and nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Not angels, not demons, not the future, not the past, not even death. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Um, you know, love is patient, love is kind, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, Paul just goes on and on and on about love. And why? Because this is the, what changed him. Love is what yeah. transformed him. And it, right. it's what has the potential to change us and the world around us. And the more we believe in that, the more we live that out. And someone like Shane is a beautiful example of someone living that out. Um, it does change us and it does change the world. And I, yeah. I, that's why I'm excited for what Shane is doing and reminding us of of uh, 
how powerful the love of Christ really is. Definitely. It's so powerful. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.